This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. And I'm Brian. And I'm Will. We're going to talk about Dune, book three, The Prophet, uh, 1965, uh, Frank Herbert novel. I just uh, got a message from you, Brian, saying you read the follow-up book to this, which was not Dune Messiah, but rather Saratoga Barrier, and reviewed it. Yeah, Santaroga Barrier. Oh, Santaroga. Why am I saying Saratoga? Because hmm. you're thinking of of 18th century history in upstate New York rather than 20th century history in California. Aha. <laughs> Santa Roga. Oh, I get it. It's a Santa. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Now it makes some more sense as a California novel. But it's not it's not El Santos, the great Mexican masked wrestler. <laughs> okay. I can totally dis- destroy our conversation with just a few words. It's a special power uh-huh. I have. <laughs> Use your power responsibly, Brian. I know, I know. With great power comes great punishment. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> oh, and come on, stop it! All right. So, um, I I heard from uh, my friend Luke, who was considering joining us for this show, um, and he was saying that this part of the book is the worst part of the book. Not that that this part of the book is the is bad. But when I remember the book, I don't normally think of this section, and yet there's good stuff in here. I mean, I think the first first third of the book is amazing. I think the second third is stupendous, and this is really good. But what, I was thinking of what, why it isn't so like, spectacular in my mind, and I think I have some ideas. But what? What do you guys think? This, is this not is is this if you have to rank all three sections of the book? Which one goes in which order? This is oh. literally the most spectacular. I mean, yeah, you know, blowing up the shield wall, the family atomics, giant storms, sandworms by the hundreds, man to man on the plains of Arakeen, the destiny of the galaxy in a knife fight. I mean, man, it is the essence of spectacle. <laughs> well, it certainly is an exciting part of the movie. Um, but I'm talking about the book. I, I am about- too. I, I'm thinking about like. Where I think he's so good is is in the sparkling uh, knife fights of conversations rather than the sparkling mm-hmm. knife fights yeah. of the actual knife fights. Although that that last knife fight is is very is very well done. I'm, I've never been a you know I read the books for the action kind of guy. Well, you, you you're a night you're a idea person, Jesse. We've discussed this on the show before. You read books because they bring you interesting and great ideas that you can think about right and in the dune novel the first section and the second section especially are heavy on the ideas we get the world building we get the setup we get the the machinations all mowing place and the third act is the culmination the fulfillment of all that promise and that's not quite as interesting to you as actually seeing those ideas and thinking about those ideas you're you're less interested in the in actually seeing those splayed out on the screen, be a family atomics blasting the mm-hmm. wall of the mountains, or or a knife fight between Fade and Paul. You're more interested in the 
the conversation at the dinner party or, mm-hmm. or, 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 or the different levels of conflict between, between the various, between the house, between the houses, the guild, the emperor. That's, I, I, that's, I that's where your jam I, is. Your analysis is dead on, but I, I still would think that each of you, if you were, you know, forced to choose which baby to take on the airplane, you know, and there's, or which babies to never see again, you know, you have to choose one baby of the three. Um, you would probably not pick the third act of this if book. I, if, I had to, if, if I had to pick an act, yeah, I wouldn't pick the third. It's not that the third isn't, isn't spectacular. No, it's incredibly well done. I agree. But I, 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 I think, I think the, I think I would go with the first because it sets everything up and just drop, drops, drops you into this world where you're trying to figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. Quidditch Hadrack, what, what, what sort of test is this? Planet well, it has that. Field? It has that problem, which I think isn't a June problem. It's a every book problem, I which agree. is um, all the first stuff is where the characters don't know what's going on. There's a lot of tension. You're like, you're waiting for, for the penny to drop for someone. There's a lot of mystery and questions. And then the third act is where everyone's like, Oh, you are still alive. Oh, that's how it is. And it's all the answers are there, which is never as exciting. Like who wants answers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that the first two books sort of position everything in a way for us to work with. And the third book is, you know, Herbert's answer to all the questions that he poses. Mm -hmm. So we can't take it. And they're phenomenal answers, but we can't take them um, as they are, just as the third book in isolation. While the first book, you could easily, or even the second book, you could kind of easily say, "Oh yeah, I could read this by itself," mm-hmm. and it'd still be intriguing. But the third book, you know, calls back to the to the rest of the the novel in such a way that it can't exist without the other two. Uh, I'm thinking this about. Is, uh, uh, I, I know I promised we, we will talk about the movies later, but I, when I think of, when I think about the move the only movie that we should ever talk about the original uh, <laughs> David Lynch version um, I think about that I actually do remember the scenes from late in the movie as well and fairly well and and the, th- the thing is is I'm thinking I was thinking about a lot of the lines were right in that movie but specifically um, the scenes like you know the family atomics and the running you know the the cutting of the ship and all that stuff that the dialogue is all there, and it is much more epic on screen. But I think w- one of the things that's missing from that from that movie is something that's very prominent in this third section. And it struck me when I went back to re- revisit the beginning of this section um, mm-hmm. that there is a gun that doesn't go off in the third section in, in The Prophet, um, and we're told it will not go off, actually right at the beginning. And then... It doesn't go off, and that, I was thinking like that is strange. It's very interesting. Which, which gun are you talking about, Jesse? The gun of Count Fenring. Yes, mm, yes. Yeah. Count Fenring is this figure throughout the book that's been a, a personal long friend of the Emperor, and you think he's going to have a crucial role in the denouement, and it never actually works out. He's just kind of there as the I mean, he's 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 held up an example as a failed Kwisatz Haderach that didn't quite work out, and he's just kind of like a friend of an emperor, and that's and you think you think, I mean, if I was now if I was reading this for the first time, what I probably would have thought that the final confrontation probably would have been 
Fenring versus Paul. That would have made perp- that would have made a thematic sense as like the real Kwisatz Haderach versus the fake Kwisatz Haderach rather than Paul versus uh, Fade Ryutha for well, house versus houses. But well, let me read ahead, that. Brian. Let me read that uh, opening right after it says Book Three: The Prophet. There's a quote from the Princess Irland's essay on on Count Fenring. Count Fenring of profile. Let me read this quote. No woman, no man, no child was was deeply intimate with my father. The closest anyone came to casual camaraderie with the Padishah Emperor was the relationship offered by Count Hazmir, Hazimir Fenring, a companion from childhood. The measure of Count Fenring's friendship may be seen first in a positive thing. He allayed the Lansrad's suspicions after the Arrakis affair. So we're getting a what's going on after the book, right? It cost more than a billion solaris in spice bribes, so my mother said. And there are other gifts as well, slave women, royal honors, and tokens of rank. The second major evidence of Count's friendship was negative. He refused to kill a man, even though it was within his capabilities, and my father commanded it. I will relate this presently. So this whole section is actually not about Paul, and not about... Uh, you know, the defeat of the Baron and the Emperor. In a certain sense, this is, is Count Fenring's book, who almost isn't in it. And at the very end, we've got Count Fenring asked to take on to take on uh, Paul in a another kind of fight, I guess, and we're told he could win. And Paul even says, this guy is the one guy who's never been in my vision. And then he declines, and we don't know why. But this is one of the things that I like about it, like for that same reason we were talking before, where it's like this thread that's running through, and there's a lot of promise and a lot of mystery there of how this is all going to play out, not in this book, but you get the idea that Fenring is going to be able to have some kind of power over him or control him. Mm -hmm. And what kind of power is it going to be? Because what we've seen of him in the book so far is he sort of mm, uh, hesitating? Uh, you know? mm, yeah. But the power—the power of invisibility—is a—is a big one. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think having a Quizatz Hatterach who was a failure in the first place to be the Chekhov's gun that doesn't go off says a lot about you know the quality of that of what a Quizatz Hatterach should be. Mm. You know, one who hasn't. Uh, come into himself shouldn't have any power because he's he's already a failure. We already know in the grand scheme of things he's not going to make a difference. So why should he have anything to do with Paul, who is the actual culmination of? You but know, I was thinking, years. you know, maybe well, why why does he refuse? And I was thinking, he's just too smart. Right? He's just like, why would I do this? Right? Yeah, it's he's just, not I'm a political have to guy. Refuse. Right? And I, I almost think like. If I had to, I, I, my Twitter profile says, uh, once master of a no, noble house, now reduced to milking a cat. So we know who I've modeled <laughs> myself after. But then at the end of this book, he dies basically from just being too tired and worn out, right? Um, but actually, if I had to live in this universe, I'd much rather be Count Fenring than pretty much anyone else because I don't want that mantle. I don't want to be yeah, fade. Yeah, I don't want to be the emperor. I don't want to be any of these people. They're too. Their lives that's are terrible. The, that's that's not the thrust of the book, though. The this Dune, the first novel, um, is about the accretion of power. 
and what happens to it, which is why Dune Messiah is such a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this has to end with that celebratory triumph of winning that power. Uh, Fenring steps aside, but it's I think he serves a few other functions as well. He helps flesh up the universe. Remember he and his wife having their private language, yep. talking to each other? I think so that's great. Yeah, that he's going to use his wife to possibly seduce Fade and manipulate him that way, yeah. And they did seduce Fade because he has a child, right? A child he doesn't even know about. But on top of that, we it also helps flesh out the uh, Imperium beyond the Harkonnens. Because the Harkonnens, that's the family we see the most of beyond the Atreides. This gives us some more of that. But it also draws in historical precedent. Um, I mean... Uh, my favorite example for this is in 1917 when uh, the idiot Tsar Nicholas II abdicated. What he did, I mean, the revolution was rising all around him, so he abdicated uh, in favor of his brother, um, the uh, Grand Duke Mikhail, who said, no, forget it, I'm not taking this, um, and uh, and turned it away. Um, I mean, that was my first, when I read this book the first time, I was thinking about that resonance mm. of someone who really could pick up that cup but deem the cup to be poisoned. Uh, and if you look around at the scene where Fenring decides, yeah, uh, this would be a terrible time to step up and become, you know, <laughs> oppose it Paul Trades now. Even if they even if they killed him, Smart. right? Even if even if even if somehow Fenring yeah. is such an amazing I'm not even sure if he, it would be a knife fight. I have no idea what it would be. But even if he could defeat Paul and kill him, uh, Paul is even saying, you know, if I die here, then I died so that I could ascend and lead their lead them spiritually, right? That it's not going to stop anything. It's going to stop. Yeah, Paul him definitely has their, an invisible quality to him. So yeah. can I um, tap into the uh, to the collective consciousness of and get a little bit of the future here? Like, do, yes. does anyone know? Does Fenring come back into the story in the future books? Not that I recall. Oh, interesting. Huh. I'm I'm sure yeah, he, there's a, a Frank Herbert, a uh, Brian Herbert, uh, Brian, Brian Herbert, and Kevin J. Anderson quadrology that's uh, just about. Let's 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 uh, uh, Google Google is our friend. Um, yeah, I totally read that as like a a kind of plant or a seed of okay, this guy's going to come back. It doesn't look like he's in any of the actual Frank Herbert sequels. It's he does show up. He does show up. He does show up in the uh, the Herbert Anderson books, but he doesn't actually show up in any of the original novels by Herbert hmm. by Frank Herbert. Another, another. Yeah, I think he. Well, sorry, go for he's it. He's the Chekhov's gun that doesn't sort of uh, doesn't come to anything, and and I think it's kind of important for Dune as well to see. You know, the failures, because what does um, the Reverend Mother say at the very beginning of the book? You know, no, no attempt to do this has ever been completed. Nobody's ever survived. And he happens to be a survivor. But in the political sense, he hasn't survived at all. He's he's kind of come straight out of the out of the battle, out of this, you know, the vying for power. So right. it's interesting to see how he's walking wounded right yeah exactly because they say exactly. he's sterile yeah he's just like an offshoot that didn't quite work yeah yeah so he's got no more future he just kind of exists on the sidelines as a could have been you know and i think we're supposed to we're supposed to think oh paul perhaps he's gonna one day be this sort of powerless eunuch as well and all this work 
uh, bears no fruit, but hmm. end up seeing it. And I think that's why they put it at the beginning of book three. Like we have, what is it? Like it's like 40 or 50 pages where we don't even mention Paul. I guess, but, yeah, I guess we kind of need that because Paul has so much power and, and abilities in this book. Like you do kind of have to see how, you know, what the alternative path would be for mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a big, I think it's a lot of world building, you know. Mm-hmm. Lito the that. second, he, he dies, oh, right? Guy. He's killed. Um, Paul didn't see that coming, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, his sister lives. Uh, again, I I do not know what subsequent books should, do with should, all this, and I know we're going to talk about it, but I'm that, thinking that should be for the appendix. That's you're getting three books ahead. Okay, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking how how. He's got he's got all this uh, insight, and all this press against, and he he doesn't see everything. Even though he wa- even though he wants to, doesn't want to. He he cannot see all ends, even though he's afraid he is seeing all ends. Yeah, and and it makes me think that you know he's yeah he's smart, but actually he's more riding the wave. He's the he's the um, he's the surfer on the wave rather than. And, and he's anticipating things, and he's doing a good job of it, but he's also not seeing stuff. And yet there are a lot of smart folks, and we see them anticipating things in smart ways. So one of them was when they're talking about the flags. Um, when the emperor comes down in a ship, and he raises a new flag, takes down, I guess, uh, Raban's flag, and puts up, or maybe the uh, Harkonnen flag, and puts up not the imperial flag... And not the Duke's flag, but the Chom com- Company flag, right? I was thinking, aha, this is like this is like uh, NATO, right? <laughs> it's not us Americans coming in. It's it's NATO operation. Now we have cover or UN, right? Or oh, UN, yeah. yeah, right, yeah, yeah. And well, does that mean the bombs don't hurt when they <laughs> when they land? No, but it's cover, and that cover um, is actually so so well done that actually saves the emperor's life in a certain sense what happens to the emperor at the end of the book is he's he's sent off to seleucus secundus to rule there which is a, a, a beautiful cruel joke right um he's sent off to rule a, a planet but it's a to rule planet, hell right <laughs> yeah and, yeah, and then hell. he says he's gonna make it he's gonna send all the things to make it soft and wonderful paul says Soft uh, to make uh, his prison cell soft and wonderful, but also and, and to, to to undercut his soldiers. The Sardaukar will not no longer be uh, the power that they were because of that. And this idea comes straight from the Iliad. You know, Atreides from the house of Atreus way back right. when. The the whole Greek opinion of the Trojans was that they were too comfortable, they were too soft. And from that, yeah, from their decadence, they didn't have that fighting will and that fighting power. So to say that the the final way to kind of call the emperor is to develop this, you know, luxurious lifestyle, not luxurious, but this sort of softer lifestyle is to me very much a callback to um, to the Iliad mm-hmm. and to the Trojan War and to say, you know, uh, we're the hard men here. We've we've done the work. We've won it. You rest on your laurels and pay taxes to us. You know, you rest on your laurels and let us uh, let us do the hard men's work. 
Mm-hmm. Or you can go from a historical perspective and the uh, the Ottoman Janissaries, slave soldiers, yeah, raised, raised under really crappy conditions. They eventually got to enough power that they were basically in control of the palace and the emperor. And that was, in the end, their undoing because, you know, once they start getting too much of the good life, then, yeah, then, then that drive that made them so feared throughout the whole Eastern Mediterranean sort of just evaporated and went away. Right. I think there's a lot for that kind of concept to be said about Dune. I mean, the Fremen themselves, they only know hardship and killing. And and Paul takes note of that about, I think, halfway through the book. And he says, you know, without some central driving ideology like having the Messiah, they're just going to go, they're just going to go crazy with it. You know, if they, if they're given uh, some sort of purpose, they'll just take it to, you know, it's, it's conclusion, not a logical conclusion, but as far as they possibly can. I I mean, yeah, one of the, one of the things I, I liked and love about Dune and things I've thought about a lot since first reading it back, back in the eighties is all the what ifs that could come out of what would have happened if things had gone a little differently than what we get in the book. Okay. So let's suppose, suppose Paul dies and then what you could have, say, Aaliyah just having, let's just kill the rest of the universe and just go on a, a, a tyrannical sort of like genocide of every planet or, or the Fremen just do it on their own using Paul as a martyr, basically creating their own religion of their, of their of their martyred hero and just let's go conquer the galaxy or yeah or or okay so so this or even darker okay so this was they destroy this this the spice the spice masses and so civilization collapses because no planet can go up and go to go uh interstellar traveling to each other easily anymore there's so many different ways that things could have come out of this central central historical event I mean, this is about the only one of the few ways I could see that you actually still get an interstellar society of any sort of any sort of structure out of it. I mean, you leave it with Paul basically at, as ruler and the and the Fremen as his army, but it could have gone far worse. And I think I can't see once Paul identifies himself as the Kwisatz Haderach, once he's made that choice, this is the best possible outcome. Yeah, exactly. It's a very Boethian decision, right? Like, this is the best possible outcome from the potentiality of the situation. I mean, I mean, to have gotten a quote-unquote better outcome would be to have killed Paul early, in which case then you just get a, I believe it's even mentioned explicitly in the book, the whole stagnation of the society just spiraling down and down and putting putting off the ultimate disintegrations even further. So... This is the way humanity survives by Paul becoming the Quisatz Haderach. Yeah. I, uh, I I remember when we did book two that I was very excited. And I, I'm very excited whenever books do, I don't know, parallel structure and that sort of thing. When And I notice it. And I'm like, ooh, I'm smart. Right? <laughs> so, you are um, smart, Jesse. And happy birthday, by the way. I know, but... But it's nice to be confirmed by reading the book, you know? (laughs) And when you read, that's why Dune is so great, is it makes you feel like a super genius, because you're seeing these plans within plans, wheels within wheels, 
Uh, faints within faints. Right? Yeah, 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 like you feel like you're a mentor. Within faints. That's right. Faints within faints within faints, right? Um, and I remember that early, uh, well, I guess in, in book two, we have um, a parallel between Paul and um, Fade uh, where they both have a fight. They're both engaged in, a, in combat uh, to the death. And the way they do it is so different. And the results, although um, similar in that they both win, um, they bring out their character. And we have another parallel like that here. So um, when in this in this book, uh, Fade tries to kill his uncle, tries to take his his position, um, and I think you know, uh, as much as I like uh, Thufir as a as a, a wise man, he's got he's got his uh, blind side. He, he doesn't see some of his own stuff. As much as I dislike the uh, the uh, Baron, he's He's so lovable in a certain sense because he's so evil, but he's also and he's, com- <laughs> and he's competent. He's evil. he's pretty darn competent, yeah. and, and and he, although he doesn't, you know, he, he's he's not a, a nice person at all. <laughs> he's, I, he's I, I, yeah, I wouldn't want him for dinner. No, but, you, you don't really don't want to be anywhere near this guy. Not even on the same planet. But make betrayed, make great again. No, see, they're di- completely different kinds of folks, right? Because one of them is all about, you know, glutton, gluttonous lust. Oh wait, maybe they're not all that different. Okay, so <laughs> how about this? Um, one of them is competent, and uh, so when when his nephew tries to kill him with that slave boy that. Uh, has a uh, poison stinger in his thigh, implanted in his thigh. Um, He's warned by Thufur. Thufur, um, he says, uh, well, let let Fade think that that I saw it myself, even though Thufur is the one who told him. And then he says to himself, but then again, I was the one who thought it was a good idea to get Thufur, so... Actually, I'm the smart one, <laughs> which is great. He does this self-rationalization. And then there's this great interaction between uh, Nafud and Fade. And, you know, yeah, I understand why you tried to kill me. Um, and, yeah, I will step aside, but you still need me. I'm still... Uh, and you, I'm going to show you, and he does, show that you still need me. And then... Uh, basically, they come to an arrangement where, yeah, I'm not going to kill you, and and then later on, uh, of course, um, Fade says, "Oh, I'm going to remember this after you make me kill all my uh, concubines. I'm going to remember this." Um, and I just imagine that scene, the next scene that we never see, of them going down to the harem, and Fade personally having to kill all these women that he obviously has some sort of feeling for as value. Right. Yeah. It's a horrible scene that we, we never see, um, oh, which but I'm it, glad. to teach him a lesson, to take his yeah. punishment. Right. And then he says, you know, I'm going to remember this, and when the time comes, oh, I'm going to get my revenge. But he never does get that revenge, right? It's Alia who yeah. who does does the deed, but she does it in the same way, stings him, right? Which is it's interesting. Um, this is Mike on Jabbar. That's right. Um, yeah. Now. What's so interesting is we have that exact same setup on the other side with Stilgar, right? 
Stilgar yes. wants to challenge Paul for leadership, but he also doesn't. He he needs to challenge Paul for leadership, but he really doesn't want to win. And the people are all, all behind that challenge, and he he's, he gives it that speech a couple of times, but eventually. The, the phrase he uses, I think it's twice, is, should I cut off my right arm? Right? Yeah. Right. And yeah. that, and that right. kind of relationship that is so well highlighted is that one is a fear-power relationship, and the other is a, a love-power relationship. Yeah, and I think there's a really important quote from Harkonnen uh, in those that previous scene is um, somebody says, oh, why don't you have a truth-sayer? And he says something along the lines of, I hate truthsayers or I fear truthsayers because his entire world doesn't the truth doesn't matter to him. He's he's establishing his own reality, you know. Yes. He's creating the world that he wants to see while Paul in sounds like a the similar Bush administration, way, right? It's it's right. it's like we we don't need to know, we don't need to know this that it could be true. That's good enough. But the truth doesn't matter because the action is more important and the action that we can inspire can then you know um, give us the things that we want from it. So to not have a truthsayer in his in his court or on his planet is such a, an interesting idea to say. Well, truth means nothing. And then for Paul, truth has a kind of different interpretation. Like we were saying with Stilgar and Paul when they're about to fight, Stilgar knows who should be, and he says, "Well, you know, the honest truth is that Paul's the one that needs to lead." So. You know, I've just got to fight him for the sake of tradition, yeah. or Paul's just got to write this maker for this, you know, for some some tradition. But the Harkonnens have no concept of really any. I don't think the Harkonnens have this idea of history or have this idea of necessity. It's just simply acting in a way that uh, that benefits them in. Immediacy. There's there's two things uh, I think that back that up exactly what you're saying. I've got that that section where uh, Fade asks about why you don't have a truthsayer. I'll just read it. Why haven't you ever bought a Bene Gesserit, Uncle? I like that it's bought, right? <laughs> but actually, uh, you're paying, but you're also it's like you pay for that uh, Echo Dot Amazon Echo Dot that you put in your house, <laughs> but actually say, yeah. they should be paying you because. They're using it against you, right? I mean, that's the thing. The Bene Gesserits aren't being uh, given away for free because or sold uh, because they're um, they're just you know trying to make a profit. That's not what it's all about. So he's right in not having one in a certain sense, right? But Definitely. I love the answer that the Baron gives. He says, a, with a with a truthsayer at your side, Uncle. And then he says, "You know my tastes." <laughs> wow. Well, well, what is what does that mean? When I read it the first time, I thought it meant um, I'm I'm totally gay, right? I don't want a woman, especially. That's, that's yeah, yeah. That's that that's the straight up interpretation. But the second but, interpretation is, I don't I don't want to be manipulated, and yeah. I don't want them spying on me and manipulating me. Too late, right? They're already been doing yep. that. Um, well, and we and we and we know that. And, and the thing about it, no, the Baron isn't actually one hundred percent gay on the Kinsey scale because, after all, Jessica's his daughter. 
Well, so. yes, it's, uh, but we don't know how that was uh, how it was done. I uh, we assume yeah, that, that there was that, a useful indiscretion, a... but we don't know how it was done. It could have been, you know. Uh, it was clearly. I, I I think it's it's pretty clear the the Benny Gesserit, uh, a Benny Gesserit, who is not shown or named, seduced him, and yeah. We wind up with Jessica. We don't. Oh, that that would be the straight way, but there's uh, other ways of getting that semen, right? If you really need to. There, there, there is. I, I but, just want to read know. the rest of this here because I think it's really, it's really cool. So sure. he says, "Why haven't you ever bought a bre- uh, bought a Bene Gesserit, Uncle? You know my taste." The Baron snapped. Fade Routh uh, studied his uncle. Said, "Still, one would be valuable for." So we've got both, right? One would be valuable for. Yeah, they're going to manipulate you. Uh, yeah, they're for sex, but they're also valuable for advice, and they can tell you when somebody's telling the truth. I trust them not, the Baron snarled, and stop trying to change the subject, right? Which is what he was doing. He was changing the subject. And then later on, when Thufer has a uh, basically a fight with the Baron about what's going on, uh, the Baron says, there are things that you don't need to know. Seleucus Secundus, I don't want to hear about this. How come you let my nephew do whatever? And then the Baron uh, admits that uh, in the presence of of uh, Fenring, that he casually mentioned the idea that he would turn do, uh, Arrakis into a prison planet. And that actually, that tiny little fact that he said that put Stufer on a track to say, no, 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 here's what we got to do. Raban has to be cut off. You have to disassociate yourself from him. And the whole of the missing years that are, th- this book has missing years, right? Of the other books, yeah. we can sort of see like a progression over weeks and um, months maybe, right? But this book has missing years, at least three years-ish. Yeah, I think Jessica says at some point they've been on the planet for two years or something. Yeah, early and Alia's, uh, you know, she's she's a toddler, so she's running around. Right, right? yeah. Um, yep. And in those three years, Raban is increasingly squeezed, um, and his forces are increasingly diminished. And that's all caused by Thufur telling the the Baron that he needs to act not to not to um, not to you know make himself wealthier but to save himself from the emperor his losses right you fucked up you yeah. you threatened the emperor if you are in competition have you never wondered about Seleucus Secundus have you never wondered about what how these um, these uh, Sardaukar are created um if you threaten the emperor, you're dead. You're dead. So you have to sacrifice uh, your nephew, Raban, and and then you'll be okay. And luckily yeah, as I, a spare, luckily as a spare uh, heir, invade. It, <laughs> it's it, 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 a spare. Uh, yeah, and and but he he was always the the one that he wanted to keep. There's a certain sense that I think that that um. You can see, even when they're not actually thinking it on screen, or even thinking it, uh, thinking it in, in a conversation, that they're actually acting 
instinctually smartly. So when the when the emperor doesn't put up his own banner, when the emperor doesn't um, uh, put up uh, the Harkonnen banner, um, he's making a political calculation that ends up saving his life, right? And when, in a certain sense, uh, the Baron is smart, just as smart as he claims he thinks he is, right? When he says, it was my idea to, to tame Thufir Howitt and use him um, to help me against the Emperor, he got exactly, he's making all the right chess moves, right? Even if he, he, he's a bit deluded about why he, you know, what's going on, why he's doing it, he's making all the right chess moves. And at the end, uh, his fate is, you know, it's not as foreseeable as it, uh, like, I don't think he, he really did anything wrong in, in the sense that Baron Harkonnen did nothing wrong. <laughs> not and not in that way, but like, how could he have escaped? How could he have made his a better play for himself at the end there? Right, he grabs the girl. Shall I dispatch her now, Emperor? He says, right. And then, of course, that was what Alia wanted to give a kind of victory to her brother. Uh, and she says the reason she let herself be captured is so that she could avoid having to tell her her brother that her son his son was dead right um i believe that that's true and now what does she have she has the revenge she kills her own grandfather she gets the family revenge the revenge that all of the injustice that the all the atreides had ever wanted mm-hmm. and that that's a good protection for her but how this poor <laughs> This poor uh, this poor Baron, he, no matter what he does, he makes all the right moves and still ends up dead. <laughs> right? Yeah. In a certain sense, there's a, there's a brilliance to this. And I just think it's it's it, it's easy to sort of dismiss the Harkonnens as sort of the twisted, inferior version of Paul. But everybody here is a monster, right? It's yeah. just there's it's the kind of monsters that you're afraid of, and the kind of monsters that you should be afraid of, the ones that, like, it's like uh, Paul, so you should be afraid of him, even though he's 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 generous, right? What does he say at the end of the book um, when he's making the deal with the emperor? He says, "Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to your prison planet." Um, I love this. Um. Uh, Thufir is dead, so he doesn't get anything. But but uh, Gurney gets to become an earl. He gets an earldom. Holy cow, that's pretty big. That's bigger than an em- a baronship, right? That's pretty good. And so that's yeah. and then he says, and every surviving Atreides, right? I assume he means soldier, right? Is going to get a title. Well, there's going to be baronets all over the place that are, you know, <laughs> Atreides a uh, loyalists who somehow survived with Gurney and survived the uh, the destruction of, of the House Atreides. That is massive reward, right? And uh, in in thinking about this 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 victory and the taking, I can't help but think to uh, the Prophet Muhammad and the story of his taking over. Of and I guess in his name, right, taking over all the lands that would become Muslim lands. Isn't this kind of a similar story? 
and how yeah, they, they cut it up into satrapies or whatever they're, they're called. It's almost it's in the same way that uh, Alexander the Great, you know, all his generals get, get you get a land and you get a land. <laughs> right, yeah. No, definitely. And that selflessness, I think, is really important to Paul's character because when you look at the Harkonnens and like we were saying earlier, the way that they wanted to treat Arrakis like Seleucus Secundus, it reminds me very much of, you know, Leopold II from Belgium just sort of plundering Africa and having no... Squeezing and squeezing, yeah. Right, yeah. And then while Paul, on the other hand, says, well, okay, I've squeezed now, you've done your duty, and here's the here's the reward for that rather than continuing in a in a sort of materialistic uh endeavor it is always though there's always like that touch of it that is so calculated which is the same um like he is being generous and he's doing all these really good things but sometimes it doesn't feel like it's like from the heart it's it's this very calculated yeah you know like he wants all those people loyal Mm -hmm. and it's the same with stilgar like he does say that stilgar is his friend and he doesn't want to kill him but he's also he definitely focuses on but i need him <laughs> like he's a tool mm-hmm. in a way as well and that, that they even i think uh i think it's gurney who says um, yeah something yeah, yeah. just to that effect that oh when is there's a one scene when they're attacking where uh he says forget the equipment and then the you know the lieutenant or whatever he says. Oh, uh, yeah. We need this equipment, and he says we need men now, right? And you think, oh, that's uh-huh. that's generous. Um, it, it's kind of like when the duke in the first book is flying over the, uh, you know, the attacking sandworm, and they land and forget the equipment, get in the get in the spotters, right? Like that scene. But then there's another scene very shortly thereafter, where I, I'm pretty sure it's Gurney again. Uh, saying, yeah. I don't think this is what the old Atreides would have done, and that's sort of yeah, the I think sign that this is this guy's. He's he's. I think it's. Go for it. Sorry, carry on. No, you got it. I was gonna say it's it's when I think Paul is like regretting the loss of the equipment and doesn't say anything about the men, and it, I think it is Gurney again where he's kind of like, your father would have been more upset about the men than the loss of the equipment. Ryan, you had thoughts? Yeah, I just want to make sure you can hear me. Okay. Yep, we got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay, no, uh, connection was dropping. Um, no, I think I think that parallel is, is is perfectly placed. It's book one and book three, nicely balanced. Mm-hmm. But I did, I, I do want to go back to to the appeal of Paul though, mm-hmm. uh, because this is one of the many many games that uh, that Herbert is playing. I mean, in one sense, the entire novel is a fantastic power fantasy. Mm-hmm. I mean, much like much like um, Slan or the X-Men. Um, you know, we we have a boy. I was reading some reviews of the David Lynch movie, and they point out that uh, Kyle McLaughlin is actually too old-looking oh, yeah. uh, for Paul's age, which is a good point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we've we, got a, you know, the perfect young boy who is you know, vulnerable. He's attacked from the beginning, surrounded by danger, but he's sympathetic in all kinds of ways, goes through the terrible, terrible struggles, and ends up master of the universe. I mean, that's, it's, yeah, it's that's kind of catnip, a, catnip yeah, for so, somebody reading it at age fourteen, like say me. Yep. Yeah, uh, me too. I mean, that's that makes Wait, all kinds of yeah, sense. Like, Achilles was about seventeen in the Iliad, right? Yeah, I think we we see that quite a bit in literature that uh, mm-hmm. people are aged when they when they make their way to the silver screen. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other problem with uh, Clawson was that he had uh, his cheeks were too uh, too full to actually be in the desert. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but just, this is enormous, enormously appealing, um, and you can see one of the reasons for its for its power. But at the same time, that's just one game that Herbert's playing because he's trying to make this seductive. He's trying to make the superhero um, as sympathetic and as appealing as possible. While in this book, the first novel, including book three, he's quietly undermining it every step of the way, making it clear that well, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe the decision to step back from power is better. I mean, this would be like if Lord of the Rings, if uh, Aragorn was the main character. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of, um, and there isn't there isn't a Frodo here. There's no one here who steps back and, and says, all this terrible power Maybe this is a bad idea. We should follow Voltaire and, and tend our own garden instead. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think only Erlon maybe says something about that, right? Mm-hmm. And her pieces is the I can't remember the exact quote, but I think she does say something about that about yeah. um, that sacrificing yourself to the to the Orthodox religion. Do you guys remember that quote? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I I don't remember the quote, but I I, I think it's striking how cruel. Paul is to Irlan, um, in not yeah. not not to because he hates her, but rather to sort of show the difference of his love for Chani. He's saying, oh, "I'm going to treat her so bad, baby." <laughs> what? Yeah. What? She's, it's the same thing again. Like she's the tool, yeah. and he's just got he's absolutely indifferent to her. And it's and yet, if you read, I, I oh sorry, uh, go for uh, it. I don't want to talk about Dune Messiah too much. I mean, I, I think it's incredibly underrated, but the first thing you see in the first page of Dune Messiah is Irulan plotting to kill Paul. Good. Like, oh, first, really? Okay, yeah. Good. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. so much for nice instant era. I have your quote, by the by the way. I'll read it out for everybody. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Thanks. Cannot avoid the interplay of politics within an Orthodox religion. This power struggle permeates the training, educating, and disciplining of the Orthodox community. Because of this pressure, the leaders of such a community inevitably must face the ultimate eternal question. To succumb to complete opportunism as the price of maintaining their role or is sacrificing themselves for the sake of the orthodox ethic. From Muad'Dib, The Religious Issues by the Princess Aurelion. Right. And, I mean, later on she talks about the whole you know, religion and uh, and politics going in the same cart and that's a bad idea. I mean, I mean Herbert's just Drawing, drawing from history to show that, yeah, once once power gets going, either controls. I mean, stepping aside, you can control it, be controlled by you, or step aside and tend your own garden. And right. none of those are optimal choices. And as you were saying before, Brian, I mean, this book starts off as the ultimate power fantasy for a fourteen-year-old who's thinking, "Oh my God, this is so great!" There's a character named me. He's oppressed and he's becoming master of the universe. <laughs> and I read, I read, I read it at that level at age fourteen. I'm going to admit, but yeah, but on rereads and thinking about it, like, no, this is a horrible thing. This is not the power fantasy. It's not just the power fantasy. That's just the Oh, top see, surface level of the whole thing. I, I thought oh, this this quote is fantastic. I mean, one of the great things about Herbert is I often treat him as a nonfiction writer mm-hmm. and just take excerpts like this as essays. And Marissa, you're so right to bring this out. I mean, it, this quote nails things like um, uh, uh, the Quakers, for example, um, or say no, not the Quakers so much as the Amish um, people who uh, you know have stepped aside completely. They maintain their um, orthodox ethic. Mm. 
yeah. but they have you know none of this power. I I was going in a much uh, much less sophisticated angle. I was thinking of uh, of there's that moment of peace you get with Paul and Chani, and it gets duplicated in Dune Messiah. There's this weird bit where he has you know this gigantic enormous temple government complex thing and hanging from the side of it he's got this like little pod where he and Chenny hang out and it's like this this little glimpse of a quiet family life that's completely hypocritical i mean it's completely impossible and becomes impossible by the end of the book but there's this moment here in book three where you think you know okay paul could have a life a good life that doesn't involve liquidating millions and billions and instead it's his terrible purpose. And I was just searching through the text. The phrase terrible purpose appears 23 times. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's what takes him away. Yeah, he's really tormented by that. And it it doesn't seem like he can find... I mean, there is no really good answer to his purpose. No. I, I, I know there's no. another parallel that, or a, a, a change that always sort of niggled at me and I, I'm feeling it a lot more now in this read. So at the beginning of the book we meet a lady who's named Gaius Helen Mohim. A nice lady who uh, has a little test for a little boy. <laughs> <laughs> and then nice we lady. realize, oh, she's not so nice immediately because she's pain <laughs> upon pain, heat upon heat, right? Piling up the heat and pain. Um, but he's teaching Paul a lesson or she's teaching Paul a lesson um, and I mean, I think that 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 scene alone is a brilliant one that um, is an iconic scene for all of science fiction, right? The fact that yeah. you know an animal will pull its foot out of the trap, chew its own leg off, right? Um, a human being will endure the pain um, and maybe get their revenge later, right? And what's the line that comes up again and again? I mean, I, I wanted to even start this podcast by saying. I see the truth of it, right? You know, this realization, <laughs> sudden explosion of realization in the men, in the mental sphere, uh, very much related to drugs, which I think we should talk about again. This book is a drug book, um, like the other previous two books ahead of it. It's a drug book, um, and how that drug affects. But thinking about just that scene and Gaius, Helen Mohim, she's not a monster there. Even though she appears like a monster, she appears like a witch, She's actually um, kind of kind. She is coming to do the test on the boy that shouldn't exist. This girl, uh, her former um, uh, what cupbearer or what is it? It was a ewer pourer. acolyte. Yeah, yeah. She she had like a she used to, this when Paul gets angry about his mom being treated badly. She, that that wench used to carry my pour my water or whatever <laughs> she was also her you know her apprentice in a certain sense and at the end she's saying well you you disobeyed your orders you did bad thing but he did pass the test and um i don't know what to do about you and she just leaves and then she's gone for the rest of the book right until she shows up here at the end and then how is she depicted? Well, if if you think about what what she says, it sounds pretty mean. She this child is an abomination, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And the Baron, um, or no, it's the Emperor. Is it the Emperor, or maybe it's the Baron? Says 
Uh, is it TP? I think it's TP. Telepathy, right? No, it's not telepathy. She's in my mind, like, occupying my space. It's just like when I was having my consciousness uploaded from, or getting all those consciousnesses of previous Reverend Mothers uploaded uh, <laughs> when I was a girl, right? That same thing happened to me. She's there now. This is terrible. This child is an abomination. Um, and, in a certain sense, is she wrong? I mean, that's the thing. Is the mom um, shouldn't have been doing drugs when she was uh, pregnant, right? Yeah, because even but the... But did she know she was... She, she knew she was pregnant. No, she was with Alia. Yeah, we knew yeah, that. The, we, we discussed this, and yeah, she's definitely new, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the fragment were shocked. Like, wait, but you should have told us. Yeah, that. she. Right. If she had, if she had said that, they might not. Then maybe they would have killed her. Maybe they would have, whatever. Right. But she, then it's a sacrifice. On, she made on the her sacrifice. Part, right. Um, and Alia, yeah. I mean, she's burdened with a lot of. Uh, she's one of those child geniuses who doesn't get along with the other kids, and uh, uh, with the fragment treat her as a witch at first and eventually uh they you know they understand and now she's leading a regiment uh, into battle at age three <laughs> okay whatever um but the important part is the guy is reverend helen mohiam if that's mm -hmm. her name she's the truth sayer for the emperor but she's is she completely i don't know she she has her her bene Gesserit plan and that plan has not gone according to plan, right? No, it's got, it's it, it went off the rails when Paul was born, but, basically. But we feel like she's the bad guy here at the end. Oh, oh, I, I think she's definitely meant to be unsuccessful. I mean, call, calling Paul's sister an abomination is clearly not just, putting her on the side of goodness and light. Right? They want even if she, she wants her Alia, dad, right? Yeah, even if Alia is unnatural which is kind of we were going to say yeah just like oh yeah kill kill her kill her now we're, we're meant to like recoil from that we're, that's not a point of view we're supposed to be sympathetic to right and yet but she is also horrified at what Paul is doing when she sees I think she gets like a glimpse of the coming jihad and that he might what he's going to do with the Fremen people mm -hmm. but only, and, only a glimpse because she can't see into him Mm. If she can't see that place, yeah, or 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 the realization, yeah, if Paul destroys the pre-spice mass and destroys all spice, that that's yeah, that's the dark future where civilization goes completely to pot. Well, they really should be, you know, this desert power that they've been, everybody's addicted to this oil, right? You know, they really should develop solar because they got a lot of. They got a lot of stars. <laughs> if they just developed a little solar energy, I think. Dune solved. Well, Jesse, in order, I mean, I, I mean, as as I'm recalling the, the, the Herbert and also the Brian Herbert, uh, Kevin J. Anderson books. I mean, the reason why this has all been developed is this is the way humans can travel through the stars without computers. Right. The, right. The, 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 the alternative is to use computers, and since the or a the, no ship. The butler and jihad. Yeah, that's that's just done. That's just a no go. Yeah, I I got that, but you know I think they also like when they go too far and saying no solar, no wind, no, no tidal energy, right? None of that stuff. We're only we're only spice powered. Yeah, well, none yeah, of that is thinking machines, right? That's that's yes. right. But but they've they they just sort of in a religious way they cut they cut off avenues of of thought. In the same way that the Baron wants to cut off avenues of thought, um, we can't explore this. So, 
uh, I'm not on Elon Musk's team when it comes to uh, uh, thinking that AI is super dangerous. I think it's super dangerous um, if you use AI uh, to uh, pull down stuff off of the internet. I don't think it's super dangerous that the AI is going to come into my house and, and stab me, right? I think AI is dangerous only in the sense that it, it can be manipulated as a weapon. But I don't think it's. I don't think we're going to need a Butlerian jihad. So that's kind of a convention, a way of explaining why this book is so, you know, archaic and all that stuff. But really, ultimately, um, it's 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 striking that uh, Herbert, who is who was very much aware of alternative energy, um, you know, he was that hippy dippy engineering uh, sociology anthropologist guy who's spending time in the desert and thinking about how to secure uh, dunes from flowing in wrong directions and and trapping water and all the things that you need to do to terraform. Um, And he's into alternative energy like solar panels and wind power and all that stuff. And this book is kind of, I mean, it is is about OPEC, right? It's about uh, CHOM and OPEC are not too different. The idea is that this oh, is everybody's everybody's got a share in this. This is like the Hudson's Bay Company or the East India Company. Everybody gets right. the profits. Um, and w- w- the 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 final humiliation for the emperor is not that his seat has taken away because his, at least his daughter's going to be the empress or whatever, but right. rather his his stock in the Chone Company is forfeit. Yeah, his voting it's stock. Brutal. God, it's it, it's uh, yeah, it's all about the corporate, the the, massive the corporate money. He's not going to get anymore, right? Well, this is what you, this is when you end up with uh, you know uh, title rich and uh, money poor, right? That's right. No, that's a brutal, brutal move. Um, no, I, I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, one thing I'd love to learn more about is Herbert's stint um, working for the army in Vietnam for a few months. Wow. I mean, I really wonder what he saw among other things about the role of uh, oil. Um, and you know how that how much that powers the modern war machine. Uh, just just so you know, uh, professionally, I've started using Balearian Jihad as a uh, <laughs> as a phrase. Um, <laughs> my job, I work in the future of education and technology, and so I've been putting that out there, saying, okay, the the tech lash, the the big growing criticism and anxiety about Silicon Valley. You know, are we mm-hmm. is this one endpoint that we should have out there? And it's interesting because when I mention it, very few people get the reference, so I have to explain it. And then it irritates some people who think, no, that's not what's going on at all. So that's why I keep doing it naturally. Um, it's 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 not it's not a really an analogy for. I mean, it, the problem is is a jihad is not a word that that sells well today, right? Yeah, no, but yeah, I mean, yeah, 19, in, in 1960, it was less. Uh, yeah, it was less yeah. problematic. This is a very. This now. is a very. Um, no, it's not the, the jihad part isn't what bothers people. I think what bothers them is that it seems uh, it seems crude or um, it doesn't meet their needs. And I have to say, if the if the dictum or the commandment is you shall not make a thinking machine in the, in the image of, of humanity, in, in many ways, a lot of the tech lash people are worried that AI will reflect humanity in ways they don't like. That it, you know that it will be based on racist data or data that's otherwise biased and will reify, if not accentuate, uh, inequalities. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, the, the, the kind of the real dread that's coming up around AI does have that kind of uh, flavor to it. What's the- I'm kind of thinking 
I'm kind of thinking a little bit of parallels between Herbert's future history and Asimov's future history. Broadly speaking, Asimov's future history is we, we, we have Earth, it develops, we get robots. Those robots go away, and then we get a galactic empire, which has forgotten that the robot really forgotten the robots were actually even a part of it. And then I think it's in Foundation's Edge, it turns out the robots are there all along. Whereas here in in Dune, we start off, man, Mankai builds robot robots and AI, destroys it, and winds up getting a galactic empire. And we have we have some houses, as I recall in the future novels, tinkering back towards that. But the same sort of, the, the rise of AI and then the backlash against AI and trying to find a, a future that is only human based and as Asimov's is much more straightforward. I mean, as Herbert goes for drugs and spice and other weird things and more ecological concerns, Asimov's is much more like, okay, we're just going to going to build these things and forget we ever did that and just go forward. Even if the remnants of that still lurk kind of around. So I'm trying to think of any other future histories like that, where we get AI rise and then AI is cast away. I can't think of any offhand. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's it's hard to. Um, I mean, you. I thought, Paul, you, you went brilliantly in, in a different direction than I thought you were going to go in. Um, when you mentioned Asimov and the future history, I was thinking of the beginning, the first book of Foundation, uh, where the empire is declining and people are... Yeah, oh, we, yeah we could go into that and, and the mule and, yeah, and right, but that's try, not, try to wrench that back onto it's not deliberate. It's not, it's not deliberate. They're not saying, gosh, get rid of nuclear power. I mean, it's no. Uh, it's yeah, yeah. It's it's the yes, whole idea of, of, uh, yeah. Like we understand this science as magic and yeah, it's, it's, as priesthoods. Back in the eighties, um, ladies and gentlemen in the audience, back during the last days of the Cold War, there was this really interesting book that became really popular beyond its domain. The book was called "Giving Up the Gun." And it was about how the um, Japanese samurai caste decided that the uh, the gunpowder was unmanly and dishonorable, and uh, rejected it. And it's it's interesting because it's one of the few cases we have in history of people setting aside a technology successfully. I mean, ultimately, of course, they fail, and and Japan figures out the gun, hence the twentieth century. But the um, but it became popular beyond its domain because in arms control talks, again, 1980s, people were turning to this saying, well, geez, can we actually you know, unbuild our nuclear stocks? Is that actually possible? Um, and it's, it's hard to. I mean, the only case I could think of is, uh, I think it was Elizabeth I who um, uh, banned crossbows uh, from ah. the British Army for a bit. But, um, but it's hard to. It really, and as you know, we... The, the U.S. still has nukes. The, the Russians still have a, a nuclear stockpile, and other countries are happily joining in. I mean, it's um, it's very yeah. I could, I, it's like I think South Africa was a country that had nukes and decided no, we're we're done with that and unbuilt them. Maybe. But that's those are really rare examples. Yeah, and that might not have been South Africa. That might have been Israel. Who then? No, no. I, I believe Israel unofficially still has nukes, but yeah, I believe it was South Africa that had a program and decided, yeah. We're not going to do this and just disassemble them. Yeah, that's that's hard. That's very rare. I mean, I I can't think of an antecedent before Dune where where that was the case. And in fact, coming to book three of Dune, uh, I'm I'm always struck by the again as a kid who loved spaceships, I was so excited to see the uh, 
Imperial fleet land on Arrakis and then so shocked when the Fremen blew their noses off, you know, like, oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that that's another case of, of Dune doing this great mash up of high technology and, and it's opposite. You know, we have, uh, um, you know, these star spanning starcraft and yet we've got, you know, medieval style politics. I mean, yeah. If yeah, Star well, Wars were actually franchise, it would do this, but it's not. If you guys somehow, I always, I always play games while I'm listening to audiobooks, and somehow they seem to match what I'm reading <laughs> by chance. And so this time, uh, I was actually playing the Butlerian Jihad, which is in the game um, Horizon Zero Dawn, which has come out, and it's it's basically uh, the machines have taken over, and the humanity yeah. has gone back to like a hunter gatherer society. Mm-hmm. People, right. are, people are calling it yeah. a robot safari. It's really yeah. fun, and it was perfect I, for reading this book. <laughs> I've watched a couple people, different people, play that game. I haven't actually played it myself. It does look really interesting. Yeah. What, what, you, what platform are you playing it on? Um, PS4. Oh, we should get my my son. By the way, who who loves technology advancement, utterly despises this game because. <laughs> it, <laughs> Yeah, of going back from technology, he finds deeply, deeply abominable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it is great. Like it has this thing, uh, which reminds me of of what it would be like, where the uh, there are ruins, you know, and the ruins are all computer screens and all the technology that the humans have discarded, and they're all sort of rotting and overgrown. And it's yeah, it's really fun to see that played out in the game. You know, uh, there's there's a uh, an interest. I, it goes back to the Amish, right? You were talking about the Amish. Amish are really interesting because they don't, and I guess a lot of Mennonites are like this too. They, it's not that they hate technology; they will accept certain technologies, and so they have this like weird policy that they don't do electricity, but they do do air power. <laughs> so you, if you're an, if you're in an Amish household, they can have a blender, but the blender doesn't run on on electricity like normal blenders do they run on uh compressed air and he said why the hell would you do that well they have a logic to all of their technological policies and they're dealing with technological policies is all the time so one of the things is that apparently happens in these communities is a new technology comes around and they say okay so you're a member of this community you think we should use this technology what are the ramifications of using that technology um so landline telephones are not something that they are big fans of right because they require a lot of infrastructure and access and electricity and blah 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 however they're maybe not as far against cell phone technology because it doesn't require as much infrastructure, right? This is why Africa has so many people with cell phones, right? This is a place that didn't have as much landline uh, access as, as uh, the rest of the world, I guess, or at least North America. Um, and so uh, the spread of um, cellular wallets, you know, uh, it was started in Africa with digital currency based on, you know, units of of uh, information uh, usage on your phone. So people were trading uh, cell phone credits as cash in some African countries, a, a number of them. And the idea that they're able to say what, 
let's slow down and figure out what technology will be useful um, and how it'll impact things is actually it's wise but it's it doesn't it doesn't um, make you the most advanced so there mm-hmm. was a case in in 1950s Canada is allied with the United States you know uh, NATO and all that but more importantly NORAD apparently the Russians are going to invade and they're going to come over the north that's what the theory is right um, so Canada is convinced to join NORAD um, there's a special mountain, Cheyenne Mountain, in Colorado, where uh, they plan the and watch for the nuclear war, World War III, to start, famously uh, shown in the movie War Games. And in that mountain, there's a commander, which is always an American, and a lieutenant, who is always a Canadian. And their job is to watch out for the nuclear missiles that are coming and then hit the response button, I guess. Um, but as part of this treaty and plan Canada was supposed to take some nuclear missiles and point them at Russia and in the 1950s this was very controversial in Canada because we don't like nukes we don't want to get involved so what ended up happening is we took the missiles but we didn't take the nuclear tips which tells you What's uh, what's really interesting, and uh, this is the this phenomena is fascinating, um, because I I I probably told this on the podcast before. One of my professors, or he was an instructor at a college I went to, was the advisor to Kim Campbell, who uh, was the defense minister, and then later on became prime minister of Canada, and he remained remained her her advisor right up to that point. So he's getting all of the absolutely top secret stuff and giving his best advice to her as to what she should do and a lot of it is just you know managing these these treaty uh, the treaties like nato and norad and there's a lot of political cost to not doing something and political cost to doing something and and being in norad is a kind of a way of not having the united states just take part of canada Right, it, we for our own defense, the United States thinks it needs to have air bases with radar stations in northern Canada. Okay, uh, would you like us to invade like we did? If you remember during World War II, and nobody remembers this, but it's fascinating. Iceland was invaded and taken by the United States. That I, was Greenland, yeah. Yeah, this is a uh, Greenland could almost understand, right? Because <laughs> there's a very, very few people there. I mean, there's a few people there. Um, but Iceland, it's just sitting there. It's not allied with anybody and it just invaded and taken over. And then at the end of the war, oh yeah, you can have your country back. Right. So Canada has to negotiate this terrible problem that there's a giant bully just South of the border and they demand a whole bunch of shit. Like you got to do this, this X, X, Y, and Z. And if you don't do that, you, you see what happens to countries that don't obey the will of the giant monster. They get steamrolled. Right. How do you? How do you pronounce the? Uh, is it Diefenbaker or Diefenbaker? Yeah. Diefenbaker. Because the you know, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, hated him. Yeah. And there was, and partially over the nuclear, but uh, he at the very least gave uh, gave resources to the liberals to um, help defeat him in in an election. Yeah. Uh, uh, this election interference thing that everybody's so upset about, not new, right? <laughs> not new at all. And I mean, when it when it comes in hard, it's called a coup. Right, you know, supported by, uh, and it happens everywhere in the world. I mean, that's what Syria is all about, right? Is 
there was a story today about just how the white helmets are going to be evacuated out of out of Syria because, um, of course, it turns out as no giant surprise if you're paying attention. Yeah, they seem to be being paid by uh, people who want to overthrow Assad. Oh, surprising, right? It's because there is a, a um, an actual machine out there doing work, trying to control the world. And if you don't get on board or find a path through it, you're screwed. So the whole Bomark missile crisis is not that we don't have missiles. It's that we need to take them because we need to be participating or we're going to get um, uh, government change. And we also need to pay the, con- <laughs> the military industrial contractors for a certain number of things. So the joint strike fighter debacle that's been going on went for 20 years now. Um, <laughs> and the fact that nobody needs any of these things, but uh, they're going to make them anyways. Um, this is a big part of Canada's military budgeting. Um, we don't really... Do we really need these particular things when drones are around and we don't really need them? But we need to make sure that we don't get on the bad side of the big bully south of the border that is the world power. And what's amazing to me is that if you look at the history in Canada in the right way, is that Canada generally comes across really always as a positive force, um, but somehow not the United States, right? And yet we don't get on the bad side. So uh, you're saying how much Diefenbaker was hated by the president. Um, uh, Trudeau, man, they hated him, right? He was he was palling around with uh, and Ju- yep. Justin Trudeau, our current prime minister, yep. not a great prime minister, by the way. Um, palling around with, uh, he, he was bouncing on the knee of... Um, Castro, right, as a as a baby. <laughs> oh, that's that that's an image I did does not need, Jesse. Well, it's a true image, and the, I'm, they I'm were not friendly. It's not true. They were friendly, uh, and and in a way, it's good because Cuba is a model for all sorts of good things. Also, it's not a not a good model. But if you think of how much they put into education with their limited resources, and the fact that you know Cuban doctors all around the world are doing good works, this is uh, amazing in that somehow they managed to survive uh, being at the center of several crises. So all these plot machinations that we see happening in this book, mm-hmm. I see as mirroring a reality that was happening in the 70s, in the 60s, in the 50s, and in the, in the 40s, 80s, and the 90s, and the, and the nows. Because um, I, I think that that consciousness-expanding drug that Herbert must have taken mushrooms, probably, um, is reflected in the spice, and it, it mm-hmm. allows you to see sort of new connections. That I mean, this is more Marissa territory than Jesse because I've never done any of that stuff. My only consciousness expansion is through reading books and drinking coffee. But isn't isn't there something amazing going on when Paul takes in that? Uh, he says right at the beginning, uh, "I'm wondering about that worm. I'm going to go." hang out with that worm and then we find out he's been in a coma for three weeks or three months what is it three weeks yeah dude yes yes at three weeks and yeah everyone's freaking out it's like oh my god what are we gonna do that is some trip all right like (laughs) at time time closing down or opening up in his case and and he comes out of it right when they're about to uh what he's gives them a sniff of the new drug and then uh, by the way that um it's paid off later when uh, Fade's knife is is poisoned 
and he transmutes yep. it no problem um so he did he have to do that maybe he did if he hadn't have done that he would have died right not having learned the technique or whatever but um if you type in the word poison into uh this book 117 times it comes up wow. yeah poison is poison is a big thing and there's few novels that really leverage that i mean i recently read a fantasy novel where the main character is a poisoner and proofer in training basically they detect poisons for their friend who's the going to be the next chancellor and also also not so not so uh advertised to the public that they're the chief they're going to be the chief poisoner for this friend and there's a real conflict for this for this poor character like I, I, he can understand how, yeah, to defend his friend against poisons, but actually be a poisoner himself is something he's not really wants to do. But that's just going to be his job. Sounds like the Russian doping epidemic. Uh, how all of the how all of the people who are in charge of uh, testing athletes were the ones that were giving them the uh, stimulants yeah. and the steroids. Uh, they're just a little more honest about it. I mean, uh, the, the <laughs> they say, okay, so bend over, comrade. Uh, here's your injection. Uh, I want to read this section because I think this is uh, this is great. This this is of course just another example of what we see throughout the book. But this is early on in book three. She took the coffee and sipped it, smiling at herself. In what other society of our universe, she asked herself, could a person of my station accept an anonymous drink and quaff that drink without fear? I could alter any poison now before it did me harm, of course, but the donor doesn't realize this. <laughs> this makes me think of like um, Frank Herbert's donor. at a, a rock concert and says, "Hey man, try these tabs." <laughs> and he's like, "Wow, I've 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 experienced <laughs> I've experienced lots of LSD before. I can I can transmute. There's no problem." And in a certain sense, that's what you do when you're tripping out on, on the floor, right? She drained the cup. Transmuting. Yeah. She drained the cup, feeling the energy and lift and the lift of its contents, hot and delicious. And she wondered what other society could have such a natural regard for her privacy and comfort that the giver would intrude only enough to deposit the gift and not inflict her with the with the donor. This is also like uh, room service, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's 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 room service, and you don't have to worry about being poisoned. This is this is heaven for Jessica. <laughs> Respect and love had sent the gift. With only a slight tinge of fear, another element of the incident forced itself into her awareness. She had thought of coffee, and it had appeared. There was nothing of telepathy here, she knew. It was the Tau, T-A-U, the oneness of the Siege community, a compensation for the subtle poison of the spice diet they shared. The great mass of the people could never hope to attain the enlightenment the spiced seed brought to her. They had not been trained and prepared for it. Their minds rejected that they could. Their minds rejected what they could not understand or encompass. Still, they felt and reacted sometimes like a single organism. So, to me, there's like that's a bit of slam stuff there, right? It's like mm-hmm. when I take the drugs, I experience really impressive things that really, you know, tell me truths about the reality. Other people, they just go on bad trips and. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, they're they're not good enough or trained enough to. To, to appreciate this gift, but I can't. Well, kind of. It's also that um, he, uh, you said something about the guide, the, there was a guide in that, in that situation, right? Me? Did I hear that in that guide? quote? 
Let me look. Yeah, did he? Was there something about like the not being trained or guided through yeah, um, the experience? Yeah, um, that is not Which there. Almost, but you're right. That is something that. Well, she's trained, right? And that's what yeah. that's what Joe Rogan's always talking about, right? Is is um, if you're gonna go on a, a psychedelic trip. I yeah, I think anyone who uses them, and I think maybe that takes the arrogance out of that. Uh, out of her experience as well is it's almost like that it's serious stuff you know like mm-hmm. you need to be guided or trained or it, it's not like that they're better because they had a good trip and someone else had a bad trip but just that um it, you, there's a guided situation or a training or and uh w- w- one of the words that he used on a recent show he's always talking about drugs um he's is this rogan yeah rogan yeah yeah um uh he was saying or maybe it was a guest saying that the etymology of psychedelic is is interesting in itself, right? Which is uh, delos and psyche, and psyche is of course mind or spirit or something like that, right? What did you say, Brian? Or soul? Soul, okay. And delos meaning clarity or manifest, so making your mm. mind manifest, right? Um, and that that is pretty interesting and. Not that I've done it, but I'm getting the sense that it can make your brain see the world in ways that you never anticipated. Is that, am I uh, mischaracterizing this any at all? No, I think that's right. And I think the thing that it does that a lot of people have that experience and which is so heavy in this book is like, it's a pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. It enhances your pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And so when you see the patterns in nature and history and people it just um that's why people get so excited about it and mm-hmm. they think they've seen like a truth because you, it takes a long time to see those kind of patterns that repeat and yeah i feel it a lot in this book that it's like oh he's been sitting in nature and seeing like wow the way the birds fly and the way the the history uh, you know unfolds there's a kind of similarity there and <laughs> truth comes up 90 times in the book wow what about pattern I feel like that he talks a lot about... 48 times. Oh, yeah. It's it's uh, it's really interesting. And one of the... Um, when she said the mass of the people in that quote I was reading when she's drinking the coffee, um, that made me think of the, the pre-spice mass that's on the surface, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how yeah. you've got this this drug that you can go out in the forest and find the... Uh, pick em, you know, pick them up and gather them up and take them home and and then sell them <laughs> some magic mushrooms basically but um also the fact that like the uh, there's almost a a convenience at the end thinking about what this power of this spice is it it's a little metaphorical it's a little bit yeah just oil but thing the power to what is the line the power to control a thing is the power to destroy a thing or vice versa no it's, it's vice versa the power to destroy a thing is the power to control right it's not that you it's not the ownership of it it's the ability to destroy it that really gives you the control and that is some heavy shit man that is yeah. you know that, yeah. yeah the more you think about it the more like whoa yeah it's dark it is super dark well i'm thinking about this in terms of uh of uh science fiction genre history uh i mean i jesse mentioned before i just finished uh, reading uh, uh, herbert's santa rogo barrier 
which just really, really briefly is about a uh, weird town in California where uh, all the inhabitants um, are very healthy. And it turns out they're all partaking of a substance called Jasp- uh, Jaspers. And uh, so our hero takes the starts consuming more of the drug, and it doesn't give him the full Dune effect. It does open his mind. It speeds his thoughts. It makes things more clear. So it's a bit like uh, amphetamines or at least coffee. Um, and, and it does have that kind of siege tower awareness as well, where everyone in the town is really connected to each other, almost almost telepathically. Um, and that becomes the plot point of the novel is, you know, what does he do with this? Is this you know, a good thing for the world or not? It made me think, you know, we've got about maybe 15 or 20 years where science fiction has drugs as a huge theme. And that completely goes away. We just don't talk about it anymore. Or mm-hmm. are we in a kind of, you know, basic way like uh, stimulants, you know, as medicine? Um, but, you know, thinking about Brian Aldiss, Barefoot in the Head, where uh, Europe gets bombed with airborne psychedelics, or... Um, Robert Silverberg, who often has characters just, you know, partaking of drugs. Uh, Norman like Spinrad. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, all these books from the 60s and 70s, and that's just that's just a moment now in, in the genre history. And you get to you get to 1980 and Reagan, and it all goes away. And, well, I was uh, thinking overnight. in 1980, yeah. um, my introduction to drugs, and uh, the thing is, is I'm, I, I, I've gone my whole life mostly super anti-drugs, and then here I find myself an exponent of uh, coffee. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, seriously, yeah. like my first experience, I think, with drugs in, in science fiction has got to be Neuromancer. And what it, how, how are the drugs used there? Almost all negative, right? Cases strung out all the time. At one point, yeah, uh-huh. he's up on the uh, orbiting uh, uh, billionaire playground. Um yeah. And then he's at, having yep. a meal, maybe it's sushi, and then he just throws up, <laughs> like goes out on the balcony and throws up into the water. I'm like, oh, you're right. wow. Uh, Which is really is... reflecting what happened in the culture, I guess. Like, yeah, that's yeah. how drugs were seen. Yeah, from yeah, that it, point on. And the thing yeah, is, just that, say that no. is a real effect that happens from drugs, but it's not to like case is an addict, and and what's the solution in that book, right? Um, his I was gonna say his case officer. What's what's the um, he start does it start with an R? Um, he's the uh, he's the guy who's was reconstructed by Armitage. the AI. What's his name? Armitage. Armitage, right? I love Armitage. Yeah. Uh, that's a book I want to revisit, but I can't because I already did a show on it. But anyways, um, <laughs> I want to say that yeah, Armitage. That's... What does he do to fix case? He implants a thing that makes drugs neutralized, right? So that he can't enjoy drugs anymore. And it's like, this is the ultimate science fiction solution that Reagan's been looking for. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a 80s Twilight Zone episode called The Helgamite Method, where a where a alcohol abuser is quote, cured by having this parasitic worm planted in his stomach if he drinks the worm comes active and hurts oh him. God. So he had stops it, 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 it's, it's a, it's a horror fantasy science fiction story, but yeah, it's like basically, yeah, you consume alcohol and you will pay for it physically. Well, it's like clockwork orange. In a it's sense. a nice metaphor. Yeah. It's a nice you know, metaphor. That's, that's how now. Keith moon of the who died. He had uh, anti, anti-alcohol pills. Oh, okay. They would give him memory loss and he would just fall asleep. Wake up, take some more, fall asleep, wake up, take some more. And he ended up overdosing on them. I thought you were saying so he was, had a parasite in him that fed on alcohol. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it was the worm. No, 
having Neuromancer... It's just his brain. I mean, it's it's very interesting because Neuromancer, the first third of it, Case is suicidal. I mean, they talk explicitly that he's trying to kill himself. And that's when he's doing lots of drugs. So he gets off of the drugs and gets back online because he was offline. Remember, he was... Yeah, uh, that's the reason he's doing the drugs, right? Right. So it's an interesting historical... I I think you you grab great text for this, that it it embodies how science fiction shifts from drug culture to cyberpunk, uh, from Mm -hmm. drugs to the digital world. I mean, there's digital technology fiction before that, of course, but that's where it really becomes central. The inner space goes from biological to uh, mechanical site... Mechanical cybernetic. Well, this is Timothy Leary was saying this uh, in the last decade of his life. He was saying that uh, the cyberspace was the new LSD. Mm-hmm. And at least in terms of genre history, that might be the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, so reading Dune now is really, it, it feels it feels dated in some interesting ways. Uh, yeah, we all... I mean, one of which. Uh, well, go ahead. No, sorry, carry on. <laughs> Well, I, I was going to say the the role of gender, and I, I, I hate to say that as I'm interrupting a woman speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. I was interrupting you, actually. <laughs> but the, the, the drug aspect uh, really does feel dated now. It's like my my son got into watching uh, Planet of the Apes, and which is good. And so we sat down to rewatch the first movie. And the first thing you see in it is uh, Charlton Heston putting his feet up in a starship and smoking a cigar. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and you think right. okay times have changed you know that's uh that's pretty different and in a way you know paul tripping his brains out yeah that's about as dated and it's a contemporary text uh this is the this is the book where paul rides the sandworm this is yes, again yes. another thing that it, it, it's it's well done in the book right but in the 1984 film uh, i think it's 84 <laughs> Um, I think they did a really good job making those models uh, feel like they're realistic and big, and and the sound is great. And um, I, I love the idea of the worm as as a kind of um, dragon, but that's not really what I feel like they are. I feel like well, they are these kind of um, massive. So one of the one of the words that I think is used to describe the the worms at one point while he's thinking about about doing the riding is there it's the conqueror worm right it's it's uh-huh. from the Edgar Allan Poe story or poem um, you know where mat, much of madness more of sin uh, you've got this giant corpse worm or coffin worm on the on this dead world um, writhing around and these are the masters of that, right? When a l- small man can create a steed out of a giant god, right? Shyalud. Hey. <laughs> You've got this giant monster. It's amazing. Now, what what's cool is uh, he's not the first guy to invent this monster. Um, this story, I, I don't know if I mentioned in previous podcasts, I did a show on it for reading short and deep. I, f- I just found it looking through some old you know, I get these old science fiction magazines, and I found this story. It's not well known. It's called Strange Exodus, and it, it has an illustration of a man atop a giant worm. Um, in fact, it looks exactly like a sandworm, um, having a, ha, walking over the landscape. And the story is amazing. But 
I just read the title here, and you can hear part of it. Giant, uh, just under the title, the editorial introduction. Giant, mindless, the monsters had come from out of interstellar space to devour Earth. They gnawed at her so soil, drank deep of her seas. Where on this gutted cosmic carcass could humanity flee? And the story starts with this man. Um, uh, he was one of the scientists who was advising the government about what to do about these monsters. Nothing really worked. They nu used nukes against them. It just sort of broke them up. It didn't stop them. And the last of Earth's sort of uh, living vegetation has been being consumed. And this man has just been on the run. Everybody's fleeing and or dead. And he decides to climb up on top of the worm, or maybe he accidentally climbs on top of the worm. I can't remember. Um, and then, in a kind of primal lust, he digs into the worm uh, to to for its liquid, right, to get some thirst quenched. And he finds it to be edible, right, and goes inside of it and takes off into space. And humanity becomes a parasite on these inter, interstellar, I don't know, spaceship creatures. And it's, it's, it's not the story of Dune, but the image is of man conquering death, right? Yeah, there's a lot of parallels. And it, I sent sure. you guys the link, and if you look at the picture, it looks like it's, it could have been a shot from Dune. Um, and it's not the most amazingly written story, but uh, thus, it's right under the picture, it says, Thus began for him a weird existence, the life of a parasite, of a flea on a dog. Um, we, uh, we kind of give short shrift to the, what's going on with the ecology in this chapter, right? It's used as a weapon. He threatens to destroy uh, all the... Well, it's a chain reaction, I guess, is what he's going to do. He's going to put some water on it, and it's going to attract a maker which, or something, and which, it's going to destroy yeah. everything. On all, it's he's going to burn all the oil like Saddam did when the first Gulf War happened, right? I'm, I'm, I was also remind just into I was also reminded of the fears when they were making atomic tests that atomic te explosion in the atmosphere would somehow sure. cause a chain reaction to destroy the Earth. Sure. I think Herbert was tapping into that. It's funny, because it's not right. an atomic model, right? But that that's certainly, like, you don't think of the... I don't... I mean, I guess you could think of of, of the spice as atomic, atomic power, but it's it, it far better fits the oil power, desert power. Oil and drugs. I mean, and drugs, yes. One of the things in the passage that you cited earlier, and by the way, thank you for sharing us that uh, that link and um, to that story. Um, when you mentioned uh, Jessica having the power to transmute the uh, poison within her body, I think one of the ways that this is a superhero story is that you have the Bene Gesserit with their incredible discipline to control their bodies. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's this is like almost like Doc Savage stuff. Yep. I mean, it's really intense to be able to do this, and this yeah, is how yeah. Paul was able to survive. And I think, again, if you're, I would say if you're just about anybody who is anxious about your body, so if you're disabled, if you're sure. sick, if you're very young, that's really compelling mm -hmm. to, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons I don't like the David Lynch movie, um, is because he invents the weirding modules, um, yeah, but yeah. instead what happens is Paul trains him in Kung Fu, 
Um, I mean, it's the it's, <laughs> yes, that's so it's, true. it's a control. It's a, it's a control of the body again to be able to do that with such minute detail, which is why I think the knife fight at the end is actually a nice climax because it's all about the minute operations of all of those body and that they both have been trained that well. Although it is funny, there's that great moment where Paul basically just says something random, and feels like what. Ah! And gets killed. I mean, it's a cartoon drop. Well, right that's there. actually in the book. Okay, so the, the, I know, that line is right in the book. And I know, and, and, and I want to make this a, a very strong defense of the weirding modules in the appendix. So we'll come back. We'll, to say, that. we'll say that for the next time. Yeah. But that's that's strength of the body is, is so, you're right. Is so, and that's one of the ways where Jessica is a major character because she really goes beyond Paul in many ways in that. Um, in her, she's had more preparation, more practice, and and, uh, and really becomes someone extremely powerful for that interior way. Now, um, there is a uh, a segment in here that is also about you know he Paul goes into the place that the women dare not look, um, and he says to the it's it's in the movie it's in the it's in the book um, he says to uh, the Reverend Mother um, look into that place. Um, and you'll find me staring back at you or something. It's done differently in the book than it is in the movie. But that idea that there's a, a place that's um, the, the women can't go, that because he is the, he's, he's kind of like the balance of the force or something, right? All the women <laughs> have been training for so long in these techniques. Uh, they can control the gender of their babies. They can probably control ovulation. They can uh, transmute uh, everything. They uh, th- there's a scene where uh, they talk about how Alia would sit there for hours on end, just uh, exercising one muscle at a time. You know, like a one above her eye, and <laughs> it's like super yoga, <laughs> it's right? So creepy. It is. It's pretty. Uh, but also, we you know we it is like a superpower. We see it as a kind of um, ultra discipline, uh, um, immense kind of body body. Uh, unification and it's it's fascinating but I want to know like what you were saying in your review of the Santoroga barrier um, there was some uh, less than good sex or gender stuff um, and I was thinking while I was reading that section of your review uh, Brian that it didn't sound that bad Um in that she she didn't seem to have an inner life, um, but it also sounded like a short novel. And this is a this is a good this is a good sized novel. The women in here have huge inner lives. In fact, I think we spend more time in in um, in Jessica's mind than we do in Paul's. Is possible? Is that is that what do you guys? Am I wrong? Jessica's mind. We spend a ton of time in there. Not as much as Paul's, but we do we do get. I don't know. We see a lot of Paul from, from the outside in in later in later stuff. Almost none of it's like in this book. He there's almost no Paul in her mind, right? There's a couple there's a couple of scenes, but mostly it's people saying what's going on in Paul's mind. Well, yeah, Paul becomes an enigma by this. He point, is right? he is enigmatic, and we're seeing him more distant as as he becomes more um, dangerous or less heroic. Um, oh. I, we see a lot of his mind in the in the first two books for sure, but we see Jessica all the way through, and we see a lot of her her in here. So I, I'm not I'm not so worried, but I'm very curious. As, 
so I was thinking, uh, maybe Marissa, you can back me up on this. I was sort of reminded of like the way Jordan Peterson talks about male and female minds. You know, women are like this and men are like that. And those are just tendencies, right? Um, mm-hmm. Being more organized um, or more, um, uh, I don't know, there's a bunch of traits that he, he cites. And, and these are, you know, psychological traits, not... Uh, you know, just his his personal opinions, um, conscientiousness and stuff like that. Um, so Jessica's a mom, first of all, right? Then she's a reverend mom. And she she's balancing not just her own interests. At the end, she, she seems to uh, say, Paul, you do what's good for you, right? I, I wanted you to do certain things. I don't think you should marry this Chani. But now I'm saying, do what your heart tells you to. Um, mm-hmm. uh, is, is her mind expansion there uh, a reflection of her being able to, like this uh, this Jordan Peterson? Uh, a, lot, a lot of people get upset about what he's doing, but if if you listen to some of the longer lectures, some of the things he he says is like, um, if men don't have father figures, it affects them in ways. Uh, because th- they're only raised by their mothers, and so I, I was thinking like this is true. Like a lot of a lot of um, talking about uh, mothers want to protect their children, right? They don't want their children to be in danger, and fathers want to protect their children too, but they also want them to be toughened, right? To be made more rigorous. And if you only t- give in to the one instinct that everybody has, male and female, to strengthen your children and to protect your children, um, and your tendency is more towards the feminine, which is protection, then you can damage your child in that you're not giving them the full kind of strength, which is having been tested and having gained strength from that. Um, Is that anything to do with what's going on in this... the Kwisatz Satarak is has to be a dude because he can go and think about things that we cannot. Is that yeah. at all what's I, going on here? Isn't it? Isn't it even stated in there? Like I don't think it's about his maleness, female psychology as much as it is about that that they can tap into the genetic history of, of their the particular line, right. right? So the Y chromosome. So she has. Yeah. Yeah. So she is literally doesn't have access to all that male all those people who are male are out of her reach, but he does, right? Like that. He, he can bring both sides together and get, yeah, yeah. he's balancing the force I, I, I or do, something do, like I, that, right? Yeah, I do. I do think. It's just a fuller a, perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a, a more casual sexism that, yeah, that Paul can get everything together, but a woman, a female Paul could not. Well, I don't know I, if it's that as, as much as the, the, um, I think it's the same thing. It's not because he's male, but because the Bene Gesserits have always been female, like they're they're completely isolated in that respect, and they've been looking for this. They weren't. She, she got in trouble for half. training Paul because he was male, right? Yeah. So they did that on purpose until they're ready for this, like this new key to unlock the other half. It, you almost think about like how you know uh, midwives are always women, right? <laughs> There's a kind of. Um, that it'd be kind of uncool to think of midwives as being dudes, um, 
we might think of it as creepy, but nobody thinks uh, an obstetrician being male is creepy, do they? Not that I know. Of. I don't think so. <laughs> but maybe some do. I mean, <laughs> uh, maybe more women. Uh, my my doctor's a female, right? Um, she's also uh, an obstetrician. Um, I, if I if if she was male, I guess I wouldn't have a problem with that. It's just it's just there's uh, the midwife tradition. You sort of feel like it's a it's a it's a caste based thing, right? That these schools, these training schools, and every everybody's divided up and i just love how many there are right so um gurney's really the he even has he even went to some school somewhere i think they all are you know he's uh, the doctors from the sook school and the uh the mentats have their training academies and everybody comes from some sort of training academy and bringing all of these disparate um he's both a mentat right which is, seems to be a male at least in this book there's only male mentats. There's only two of them, I guess. Um, I was wondering where um, the. I was wondering. It, where the women mentats? Actually, I was just thinking maybe. Um, no, who is who is the emperor's mentat? He doesn't seem to have one, right? It's it's almost um, maybe that he, he, he doesn't does mentat there. He doesn't have it in the book, but I believe in the the Zine miniseries he has one. Okay. Well, I don't think he has any lines, anyways. Is this, yeah. these male domains and the female domains? Um, this is also very, you know, Arabic and the, you know, women's roles and men's roles. But I don't think it's the source of it. What, what's that? I don't think that's. I don't think it's. I don't think it's the source of it. Um, the uh, Herbert's perception of, of Arabic or Islamic society, although that does show up in books five and six, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, I think it's, um, again, this is a, a 60s science fiction thing, uh, is this is a work of anthropological science fiction, and he's reading really, really closely into anthropology and looking really hard at uh, traditional yeah, yeah, societies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Bene Gesserit are kind of like practical anthropologists without ethics. I mean, they're shaping these societies based on their knowledge of how humans work. And, you know, one of the things about Anthropology, especially in the 60s, is that most traditional societies have really strict gender roles, mm-hmm. very strict. Um, and that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, for me, that's one of the reasons I, I, I don't think, I, that's my view of how a lot of this is constructed. And when, now the Imperium is not um, a traditional society; it's more of a, of a of a remix of a medieval society, which again had very strong gender roles in different ways. So, you know, at the end, when the women are being tossed around like um, like playing counters, and then the men are doing all the fighting, I, yeah, personally, I find that not the society I want, but it makes sense in that historical framework. Historically, yeah. Um, but still, it dis- it disturbs me. My, uh, um, you know, still seeing the, the, the sense of, I mean, I've, I've seen some criticism that Paul is the you know, white savior who gets to save the brown people, um, but also the sense that it has to be male who solves the female problem, and then becomes better than the women. Uh, I mean, that's that's the main thrust of the of the criticism about sexism in this book that I've seen. Mm. White male savior. That that's just saves the women and, and, and the. I think that's just too easy. You know, it's just like 
people want to criticize all sorts of things. I I don't feel like that that I mean yeah it's got a male protagonist I guess, um, but I I just think of how powerful the role of Jessica is in this book. I think any if you, if you don't want and the Ben and Jess- I mean I, 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 this book passes right. the Bechdel test. I don't think that this is something that we should care a lot about. But I was thinking oh there yeah. there's a huge long scene uh, where Chani and um, and Jessica and and Alia are all sort of going at it, um, and it's not about Paul, right? It's about uh, about the the daughter, in fact, uh, Alia, and Alia's like, uh, I guess Alia's the the brilliant one, um, and Jessica's the wise one, and um, Chani is is like, I'm here too, <laughs> but yeah. The yeah, women do don't... have a big role in this, and I think that's my problem with sometimes trying to look for sexism and stuff in books like this. Is like there there has to be a pattern of it for me to care, and I can I can care when there's a pattern in the society, or like if, if all the books are the same, the guy is always, you know, the hero or whatever. But it's true that Paul is like kind of the savior in this book, but the women have so many roles as well that it doesn't bother me. I, I, I kind of want to read a version of Dune now with Paula Atreides, <laughs> her, her her younger her younger brother Al, and uh, yeah, Chan, 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 her Paula's lover. That would, that would be, be fun. <laughs> yeah, it's too well, bad it wasn't I, I, in I, public I, domain. You could just go in and gender swap everything and see what happens. I, I, I'm just, just just think about this. Jessica bears a daughter just as the Benny Jesuit just one or two, and it doesn't work anyway. Paula decides to uh, become the quizzer. Well, it would have, to be, have to be Lita who bears the daughter, daughter, right? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't read it since it came out, but um, there's a Sherry Tepper novel called Grass, which I've always interpreted as a uh, riff on Dune. Hmm. Um, it's very, very similar, um, but it's also much more evenly gender balanced. Um, and it's been a while since I read it, uh, but I, I think women have... Uh, more plot role than men, and I think that would that, make sense for Sherry. Yeah, Tepper. given Sherry Tepper, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but I, I, again, I'm sorry, I I haven't read it or looked at it since '93 uh, or so when it came out. But um, but that would be an interesting version of this. Mm, what's that one called again? Grass, Grass by Sherry, Grass. Sherry Tepper. So I, I I think we're coming close to the end of this book, but I I want to just point out that if if one was, I'm not a university teacher or anything, but I think if you were going to do, say, I want to do a course on science fiction, which I've done at university, um, mm-hmm. I don't think they spend enough time with any particular ones, and they often spend a lot too much time with books that aren't that good. Um, I think it would be kind of an error to do a course just on Dune. I think you have to break it up into its three books and do one semester for each. And then you might be getting some 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 of the depth that it really really does have. This is mm. a this is an amazingly rich text, and that's there why was, it endures. Was, I think it's because and, of the and, 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 not the and, and not the a, not the archetypes, not the you know I, calling him the hero. It doesn't even make it. He's not the savior. He's actually turns out he's the baddie. Right. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> he becomes exactly. a subversion for you, right? But if you if yeah. you look at it f- 
from uh, the 14 year old's point of view and you say look i'm this is me i'm my name's paul too right yeah of course you see it <laughs> as a uh, and that's how i saw it this is a wonderful adventure it makes you feel smart um but yeah that's why it's the, so you can reread it with a you can shift your perspective slightly and read it again with a slightly different perspective over and over and every single time it's a there's something book new in and a different sense it's a drug every, book in a certain sense every, it's every time i've read the book it's history yeah, i've learned something and something new yeah that i didn't i didn't catch before and so. that's why that's why i bought the 250 dollar folio society edition i actually Won it at an auction. Oh. Won it at an auction that oh, paid nice. for at for uh, for convention. But that's that was the cover price. So basically, Scott Lynch, who was the one who was auctioning it off, basically made no money on the deal. But you know, because it's Dune, it's like yeah, yeah. yeah but when they started bidding, my head's just going up like, like like a rocket. Like yes, I need this. Oh my! Mention just one one last thing to cap this off. Then I need to go too. Is that um. You know, I'm I'm a Dracula scholar, and one of the weird things about reading other things by Stoker is how they they don't measure up to Dracula. Mm-hmm. How they feel like they're almost written by different people. Um, mm-hmm. And I've read almost everything by Herbert now. Just about, I've saved a couple uh, for last. And it's interesting that, I mean, his other novels are all over the place. I think in terms of quality, um, none of them is Dune level. Some come close. I mean, I think uh, Dosadi Experiment is about as weighty. Um, Whipping Star is totally bonkers. It's one of my favorites. So it's just this massively inspired surreal novel. It's like a hundred pages long. Um, but I always have this feeling, even as even as weakest novels, that Herbert is playing games of such complexity and depth. I think the only other writer I know who comes close to this really is uh, Gene Wolfe. You know, it gives me the sense mm-hmm. of my mind stretching, stretching, trying to figure out ah, where is this. <laughs> Um, and from from uh, Herbert's contemporaries, I'd say maybe uh, maybe Chip Delaney, um, you know. But that I just love that sense of uh, reading Herbert is among other things like a mental mental workout. I always get uh, makes me feel smarter. An emotional like, workout too. You know, um, I haven't read a lot of his other stuff, but uh, the one called The White Plague, which is barely science uh, fiction, right? Man. Oh god. That is a Yeah, it is science fiction. It is science fiction, it is science fiction but it's set in a contemporary world. Oh. And it, it's oh, it's uh it's kind of like Children of Men, I guess, but it's about a, a sort of kind of an emotional <laughs> destruction. Mm. Yeah. You're making yeah, happy true. noises, Brian. You like that book? Uh, he's being tortured yeah, I mean, on the he, rack just thinking um, about it. He knows story. I mean, he knows how to oh, cool. how to and how to take it into all kinds of places. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. We need to uh, set up the uh, SFF Audio Compound. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <I'm in>. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's going to be the guy and the spokesperson because he's got the beard for it, right? Uh, That's right. Speaking yeah. of which, speaking of cults... Um, uh, have you guys all seen this movie or heard of this movie called um, uh, The Endless? Yeah. Have you seen no. it? I really oh, like yeah. it. I really like it. And it's also it's a kind of sequel, too. Uh, yeah, that's what I hear. I'm going to go back and find the original. Endless? What is, so this the, is a 2017, what's, 2018 what's movie. Um, that's it's, kind of, a couple, it's weird uh, fiction. A brother and 
Yeah, it's very weird um, in, the, in the classic sense. I mean, it's uh, about a couple of brothers who, when they were kids, were part of a cult. And the older brother got the younger one out of the cult. And now their lives are pretty terrible and pointless. They get a videotape in the mail, which makes the younger one want to go visit the cult again. So they go back and visit. And things are strange. Mm-hmm. And it's it's huh. great because you, you have uh, this sort of false false memory problem at the beginning. And... And you're not sure what what's going on with like you don't know that it's false memory, and then things sort of unfold slowly, and by the end you're like, I got the entire picture. I, there there's no <laughs> there's no explanation. <laughs> picture, you meant that. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I, there's no explanation uh, as to what what caused this. Um, but they do drop the Lovecraft name, and uh, we get the sense that it might be color out of space sort of situation. Um, yeah. And uh, it's it's low budget, the but the, the, like the they use their money very well. It's it's no visible budget at all. It's it's incredible. Yeah. Um, but it also it fits into their previous um, film, which is called Resolution, which is even cheaper. Oh. Um, and Resolution is about a couple of friends. One's a serious drug addict, and the other decides to help him dry out. So statues him in a, in a, in a cabin to uh, get him off the hard way. Um, and things get weird. And what happens is The Endless ends up docking into that movie. Kind of like it's Marvelverse, except with the exact opposite amount of money involved. Wow. <laughs> and if you, want, if you want weird, The Endless really, it's, it's a really nice touch. Um, and again, with so little money. Speaking of weird, I got to run, friends. Wonderful talking to you. See you in the compound. You too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've got gaming, and it's now. I got to go to so my birthday party, which well. is in five zero minutes.